And uh, can I add my word of welcome uh, to that of Vincent just now? Uh, Can you turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 on page 1183? Page 1183, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're up to verses 8 to 15 this evening. Page 1183, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning from verse 8. And in your bulletin, if you could turn to the middle pages of the bulletin, uh, you'll see there an outline of the sermon. Uh, and you'll also see there the cross-references that we'll be looking at. So if you have that open in front of you, that'd be helpful so that we don't have to um, spend a lot of time flipping around. We could just use that. One Timothy chapter two. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, and and we pray now that uh, you continue to do that, uh, even as we uh, come to look at this passage, this this difficult passage together. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will uh, enable me to uh, to preach it rightly and in your Spirit's power. And we pray that you give each one of us hearts that love you and long to obey you, to see what you want us to do. So help us, Father, as we look at this passage. Open our eyes and give us wisdom. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are coming to a difficult passage, aren't we? Uh, it addresses a topic that we, we don't talk about very often. Uh, but that's not why it's difficult. It's, it's difficult because it flies in the face of our culture, or at least the more progressive elements of our culture, which most of us, myself included, tend to identify with. However, as believers, we are ruled not by culture, but by Scripture. For the word we have before us is not just the word of the Apostle Paul, it is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord cuts across every culture in some way or other. And it's quite okay when God's word corrects and challenges beliefs and practices of other cultures, but it can be quite uncomfortable when it cuts across our culture. But we need to be people who are humble and contrite and tremble at God's word. We need to trust the God whose word it is. And we know we can do that because not only has God made us, but we know that he loves us. Uh, We see his love in many ways. But the ultimate demonstration of that love is at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Where he died to pay the price to save us from all our sins and its consequences. He took the punishment for us. And if God loves us that way, then he does care for us. And we can trust that what he asks of us is is good, not bad, even if it contradicts what we would have done if we were just thinking it for ourselves. The passage we have before us deals with gender in church. So just before we get to the passage, I'd like us to think a little bit more about what the Bible as a whole says about gender, and then we'll come into this passage. The Bible tells us that gender is part of God's plan. God created us in his image, male and female, to rule the world together under him. So both men and women are made in God's image, but both women and men have sinned and need salvation. Both women and men who believe are are saved by grace through faith in Christ who died for us. Both women and men are equally precious to God. Both are heirs of salvation. 
And so Paul in Galatians 3 speaks about our equality in salvation when he says, and you look in the, uh, the handout in, in verse 28 of chapter 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's fundamental equality. But it doesn't mean that we are the same. Even back in the Garden of Eden, uh, God made man and woman together in his image, but he gave them different roles. Uh, Adam was the leader, Eve was the helper. But those differences didn't change the fundamental equality that came from being made in God's image. And even today, as believers, our identity and worth and value doesn't come from the roles we play. It comes from who we are in Christ. And that is the same for all believers, no matter what our roles are. In the Bible, we see two contexts in which men and women are given different roles to play. And the first one is in the family. Uh, in Ephesians 5, also in your handouts, we, we see in verse 22 that the wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And in verse 25, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so this leaves no passage on the one hand for the husband to take an authoritarian stand over his wife to, to abuse her or be violent towards her or, or treat her as a slave. And on the other hand, it also leaves no room for the idea that husband and wife are just simply mutually interchangeable. There's a fundamental equality in value, but there is a, a difference in role. And the reason for this difference is comes back to God's plan in creation because if you read on in Ephesians 5 you'll see that Paul points us back to the original marriage of Adam and Eve and he says actually that's about Christ and the church. Marriage is instituted by God in creation to reflect that love and sacrifice of Christ and the, and the submission of the church to that love. And so while there is a, a fundamental equality between women and men, that equality can coexist with a difference in function. And in this passage today, we will see that this difference is also expressed in the life of the congregation of God's people. But before we go there, let me remind us where we're up to in the context of this passage in, in 1 Timothy. We've seen over the last few weeks that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy. He has left Timothy at Ephesus to stop those who have been teaching false doctrine there. And he's writing now to show him how people ought to behave in the household of God, the, the congregation of his people. And we saw last week that when God's people gather together, we are meant to pray for all people, including those in authority. Our Christians have to pray for everyone because there is only one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one ransom for uh, the death of Jesus on the cross, and that was the testimony, that was the, the gospel message about Jesus that Paul's entrusted to preach. It's the, the only message that can save. And so we should pray for circumstances which allow for maximal gospel opportunities. That is, peaceful society where Christians live in godliness and integrity. And as Paul begins his next section, he continues with that theme of prayer. And in verse 8, he speaks specifically to the men. He desires, verse 8, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, some of us men have a tendency to fight instead of pray, don't we? 
Now, there might be women who are like that as well, but it's primarily a problem for men. We forget that we're dependent on God, and we keep trying to solve our problems in our own ways, or just get frustrated and angry about them. We are tempted to raise our fists in rage instead of raising our hands in prayer. Now, of course, there are many different postures for prayer described in the Bible. Lifting hands is one of them. The emphasis here is not so much on the position of the hands, but the, the character of the person praying. God wants us to be raising holy hands. You remember our Old Testament reading from Isaiah? God spoke to his people Israel. He said, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. And so he called them to repentance. Men in our congregation, we must certainly not be people who use our hands for violence. And especially not for violence against women. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it warns us to understand and honor our wives as the physically weaker gender, lest our prayers be hindered. In other words, do not expect God to listen to your prayer if you are using your strength to beat up your wife. But the verse says more than that. When we pray, we should raise holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're not to be the kind of people who are full of bitterness and anger, and then we settle down for the service and pretend everything's okay, and then after that we fight in the car park again. We need to be able to honestly say, in the Lord's Prayer, as we forgive those that trespass against us. Men pray without anger or quarreling. And then Paul turns to address the women. Society then, as society now, pushes females to look a particular way. And today, billions of dollars are spent to conform. All kinds of self-image problems come up as a result because nobody can compete with the pictures of the models who are unhealthily skinny, who have been made up for hours, photographed in controlled situations, and then airbrushed or subjected to computer manipulation to enhance features and eliminate blemishes. Even the models themselves don't look like that in real life. So Christian women, how do you make yourselves attractive? Oh, well, here we have two main points. First of all, dress decently in verse 9. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Wear clothing that says respectable or decent, not revealing or sensual. Now, what that means, of course, will be different in different cultures. What is revealing and sensual in one place might be modest and sensible in another. And God hasn't given us a detailed dress code. He didn't say your skirt has to be how many inches long, or you have to cover your ankles or knees or elbows or shoulders or earlobes or, or, or whatever. Instead, he gave us principles to apply. Dress modestly and respectably. And you work out what that means in 21st century KL. And as you do, do not rely on sensuality to make yourself attractive. Instead, and this is the second point here, let your beauty come from your godliness. Verses 9 and 10 again. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. 
See, the thing that makes you beautiful is not your expensive clothes or your wonderful hairstyle or your shiny jewelry. The thing that makes you really attractive is your godly character and good works. Now, Paul's not saying you can't have any jewelry or makeup. He's not saying you can't go to the hairdresser. No, these things are not evil in themselves. What he's saying is you should not be relying on them to make you beautiful. That's not what you to adorn yourself with. If you're a woman who professes godliness, then the thing that makes you beautiful, the thing you should adorn yourself with, is who you are and the good that you do. A godly woman is an attractive woman in a far deeper way than a woman who is elaborately decorated. To quote a song, that's what makes you beautiful. And men, learn to appreciate the beauty of godliness and good works more and more. Well, Paul moves on from how women are to adorn themselves to how they are to function in the gathering. Verse 11 begins with these words. Let a woman learn. Now, that's important, isn't it? Because there are many cultures in the world where women are not meant to be educated. But the Bible says that women are to learn. They are to learn, verse 11 continues, quietly. Now, quietly here can't mean that they're not allowed to speak at all during the church service because, well, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how women are to pray and prophesy in church. So, so what does it mean? Well, the word quiet, there's the same root word as we saw last week in verse 2, where we are to pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives, well, peaceful and, and quiet lives, isn't it? Uh, that is a life that is tranquil, that is free from fighting and, and civil unrest. And so when Paul wants women to learn quietly, he wants them to do so without controversy, without quarreling, like he wants the men to pray. And he wants them to do that, verse 8, with all submissiveness. To submit to someone in a biblical sense is to willingly place yourself under their God-given authority. And so for a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness in a congregation means that she is willingly and peacefully learning from the teacher in the congregation, coming under his authority in that setting, rather than trying to usurp it. Like the good women in this congregation are doing right now, and indeed do every week. There is a difference in the role here between the women and the men, with regards to the teaching in church, and this is made explicit in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Now again, this doesn't mean that women aren't to teach at all. Uh, in Titus chapter 2, older women are to train younger women. However, women are not meant to be teaching God's word to a mixed congregation or to exercise authority in that congregation than in the way I'm doing now. For the leadership of the congregation, just like the leadership of the family, was, was meant to be the role of the man. But why? Well, the answer comes from God's original plan for men and women all the way back in Genesis 2. We, we call it the order of creation. Look at verse 12 again. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority of a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
Now, why going back to Adam and Eve? Well, you see, life in the Garden of Eden was like the pattern of God's ideal plan for human beings. That's, that's the way we're created to be. That's what it was like before the fall. And that involves God giving the, the leadership role to Adam. Uh, we see him in Genesis making him first, uh, creating the woman to be helper for him. Uh, we see Adam exercising that leadership by naming the woman. Uh, we see it's to Adam that God gives the command not to eat from the tree. And even in Genesis 3, after the fall, God still approaches Adam first. And, and he, he, he makes him take responsibility. That is the pattern that God established in Eden. And so when men have the, the leadership role in the church in terms of the teaching and authority, and the women are supporting them in that role, we see a reflection of God's purposes in creation. The pattern that God set up in the garden is maintained. And so the first reason that God's word gives us for women not having the teaching and having authority, a role in a mixed congregation, is that order of creation. The second reason has to do with the fall. Now, there are a few ways of interpreting verse 14. I'll tell you what I think it is, but do know there are alternatives. Verse 14 says that Adam was not deceived. I don't think Paul's excusing Adam, because when we go back to Genesis 2, we realize that this actually means that he deliberately chose to sin, which, which seems to me to be worse. The woman, verse 14 continues, was deceived and became a transgressor. Remember how God created man and woman to, to, to rule the created order under him, and he gave man the, the leadership role in that. And so you've got God ruling the man and the woman by his word, and the man exercising a leadership, the woman helping him, and together they are ruling over creation. But at the fall, we see this pattern reverse. We see Eve was deceived by the serpent, part of the animal creation, and instead of following God's pattern and obeying his word, Adam chooses to, to follow his wife. He decides to follow his wife and eat the fruit. And so instead of the, the God, man, woman, create, the whole pattern is turned upside down. And if this understanding is correct, then Paul's telling us that the creation order is important in church life because to violate it is to, to follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve in the fall. But however you understand verse 14, Paul's given us two reasons for this command. Creation in verse 13 and the fall in verse 14. He doesn't base the command or some kind of social situation in Ephesus, like, oh, the women are poorly educated, or you've got disruptive women teaching false doctrine. He doesn't give a cultural reason, or oh, no, it's not appropriate culturally, or a pragmatic reason, or someone might be offended. Because if he did any of those things, then, well, we can say the situation's changed, and the instruction doesn't apply anymore. But Paul roots this instruction in creation itself, something that's, that's universal and applies wherever and whenever. So we're not really at liberty to ignore it, even if our culture doesn't like it, or even if it's going to turn people off or make us unpopular. If God says this, then we, we've really got no option but to pray that he will change our hearts so that we will gladly and cheerfully and honestly obey his word from the heart because we love him and trust him and want to fulfill his plans. But the fall is not the end of the story for Eve and the women she represents. 
Verse 15 says that she will be saved through childbearing. Now what does this mean? Well, the original Greek has the word the there before the word childbearing in verse 15. It's quite legitimate to translate a sentence without it, but it may be better to translate it, she will be saved through the childbearing. And what's the childbearing? Well, again, remember back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent. And one of the things he said, we saw that in our introductory sentence at the back of the bulletin, we saw this, he said, I I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring of the woman, someone will be born from the woman who will eventually come and fight the serpent and he will defeat him, he will bruise or crush his head, but he himself will be wounded in that process. And of course that promise was fulfilled in Jesus, wasn't it? He is a true serpent crusher who who decisively defeated Satan by his death on the cross. And so even though Eve was deceived, she and the women she represents will be saved by him. Provided, verse 15, they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That is, if they are truly believers, if they truly belong to Christ, then these are the things that will be seen in their lives. And so you see, even though the woman was part of the problem together with Adam in the fall, God in his mercy makes her part of the solution in the bearing of his son. So we see now that women and men are equal but different, with different roles to play. We've seen that the role of of teaching and having authority over a man is not appropriate for a woman in the context of a mixed congregation. But I don't want to leave it there because this is not all the Bible has to say about the ministry of women. So let me add a few things by means of clarification. The Apostle Paul himself worked in ministry partnership with many women and highly valued their ministry. In Romans 16, he calls Priscilla and her husband Aquila fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4, he calls Euodia and Syntyche fellow workers who have labored side by side with him in the gospel. In Romans 16, 6, Mary has worked hard among you. And in verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. And Persis has worked hard in the Lord. And, and of course, in other places, he, he calls men his fellow workers as well. Paul celebrates that these women and men are his partners in ministry, serving together for the gospel. But that that doesn't contradict today's passage, does it? Because the fact that we all work hard together for the gospel doesn't mean we all do the same things. Likewise, Jesus affirmed women and their roles. And not only did he appoint men to the authoritative positions of apostleships, Yes, but that didn't mean that in any way he he demeaned women or nullified the the contribution of women to his cause. We only have to think of the examples of Mary and Martha and the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, Mary Magdalene, indeed all the other witnesses to the empty tomb. Jesus loved and affirmed and taught and healed and honored women. So the fact that he appointed 12 men to the authoritative leadership role of apostles and at the same time affirmed and honored women That's a great example, isn't it? Of upholding both the dignity of women and the order of creation. 
So I don't want you to think that just because women are not meant to be teaching the Bible like this to a mixed group or having authority over men in the, in the congregation, that means that they've got no role in ministry. There are many, many, many areas of ministry that it is right and good and proper and appropriate for women to be involved in, including on a full-time basis. In fact, as I look around our church today, I don't see us having a problem with women trying to take over men's roles and teaching the Bible and, and leading the church. I'd like to suggest that, if anything, we need to do more to encourage women in ministry. Women are to learn, Paul says. I'd like to encourage all our women to take the opportunity provided to, to keep learning and growing. I'd like to encourage all our women to serve in ministry. There are so many areas of ministry that women are to be involved in. Teaching other women, kids' church, youth, sharing the distribution of bread and wine, visiting the sick, caring, counseling, information, technology, social media, reading the Bible in church, praying for others, welcoming, one-to-one -one discipleship, evangelism, the list goes on and on. In fact, if you're a woman here today and you'd like to think about how you can serve Christ more among us, then how about filling out one of those blue cards and one of our leaders would love to get in touch with you and explore this with you. So as we conclude then, what have we seen from this passage today? Men, we are to pray. And we are to do so without anger or quarreling. Women, dress decently and appropriately. As women who fear the Lord, adorn yourselves with good works. All of us, let's minister appropriately in church. Men to be the ones in the teaching and leading role, in the mixed congregation, not because they're better or more important than women, that they're not, but because we all want to glorify God by reflecting his creation plans in our lives together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of coming to you in prayer through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to pray and to do so with, without anger and quarreling. Please help us to be thoughtful and, uh, and appropriate in the way we dress. And may we adorn ourselves with good works. Help us all to learn and to serve appropriately in the roles that you've given us. And may we find our dignity and worth in the fact that we are your children in Christ and not from any role that we may play. We thank you for including us all in your plan of salvation. And we thank you especially for the childbearing that delivered your son into this world to defeat the serpent. May we continue in him, in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And we ask this in his name. Amen.